Um, I run a number of organizations and if someone is genuinely interested, I try and engage them in whatever means possible because ultimately you really want to channel that passion and you never, I, I never want to say no to someone who comes with such pure intentions and such intentions of wanting to learn and get involved in politics. If someone who was 16 and came to me who said that, I'd try and involve them in some way. That was Kate Crowhurst talking about how young people can engage more in the political system. Kate has a background in education as a teacher. She's an author of textbooks for the Australian curriculum and also a federal education policymaker. Now, Kate currently works as part of the National Financial Literacy Strategy, providing Australian teachers with professional development and resources. And her organisation Advocate connects young voters in Canberra with their local politicians, directly engaging young people in democracy. I've been lucky enough to be a part of Advocate's first cohort, and I can honestly say that it is an incredible opportunity to have direct and meaningful conversations with like-minded young people and politicians. Just quickly, before we dive into this podcast, I want to ask that you leave a review for the podcast on whatever apps you use. Um, It just means that having more reviews makes these episodes more visible to um, people across the board and also allows me to see any feedback that you might have. All right, so here we go. Um, Hope you guys enjoy with Kate Crowhurst. Yeah, um, so I wanted to start out by giving people a bit of an idea of the sort of work you do now um, and what really drives you to do that. For sure. At the moment, I have two twin passions, um, both of which I realized my two twin passions when I was researching them through my degree. Um, I, for my day job, do financial literacy, or rather I empower teachers to have the tools and resources they need to teach financial li- literacy to kids all across Australia. And the other side of what I do is political engagement. So that was always a kind of side passion. And I've recently started an initiative to ensure that young people are given the opportunity to get in front of politicians. And I think that's key for the future democracy in Australia to have that engagement. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so it definitely seems like you've had, you know, a pretty good uh, set of experiences that have brought you to where you are today. Um, so really trying to break all those down. Um, I really want to start from the the very beginning and, you know, look at where you grew up and sort of what your childhood environments were like and any sort of personal traits you had um, looking back as a kid. Yeah, for sure. Um, people probably won't get this from my accent or indeed my name, but I was actually born and raised in Bahrain. So Bahrain is a tiny island in the Middle East. Um, I lived through two Gulf Wars and picked up a lot of the conflicts that were happening around the region. And yeah. I think that gives you a very different perspective of, how you engage with people because I wasn't at a standard international school that people would come and go from hugely different backgrounds. And I think that was really important to knowing who I was. And ultimately it was kind of person who you must get on with everyone. And I think that made me be kind first and foremost, and also made me be able to appreciate being able to mix with people and being able to have conversations despite what's happening around us or what we're reading in the news. Yeah, totally. And I definitely um, would not have guessed that you grew up in Bahrain um, and growing oh up through, God, my- through some conflicts <laughs> as well. <laughs> my Arabic is so rubbish. So. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I, because I grew up in Abu Dhabi, so I, 
I was learning Arabic as well, um, naturally at the schools. Yeah. Um, But to be honest, my Arabic is pretty terrible too. I only know how to read Arabic. I don't understand or, and I can't speak it either. Um, I think they were very effective in teaching me how to read, but just not the rest of it. (laughs) I have the opposite problem, which is really unfortunate because I don't look like I come from the Middle East in any way, shape or form. So if I'm in a, if I'm in a situation where the people around me who are making prejudgments or something and happen to be speaking Arabic, I can understand a bit of what they're saying. <laughs> um, and I actually taught, we'll get to this in a little bit, but I taught in a school um, where a huge proportion of the students spoke Arabic. Um, mm. So that was really interesting for them um, that they're teaching you what they were saying. Yeah. And so looking at like, um, I'm sure you're, you're pretty well aware as well about what, um, the students go through um, in high school and university in Australia. Uh, what's that contrasted like um, in somewhere like Bahrain? Um, I'm going to say had more freedom, I think I'd say. Um, so, which sounds completely opposite to what you'd think. A lot of our life was regulated, um, but we had more freedom and I think we were a lot more mature in some ways. Um, Because all of those students had either moved around or they dealt with things you wouldn't normally deal with at that age. We were a lot more mature. We were having discussions about politics where I came to the Middle East at 15 years, 16, and it felt like people weren't weren't necessarily exposed to that experience and that did affect the kind of conversations you would have, which isn't necessarily a bad thing at all, but that was, I guess, the key difference was just exposure to what goes on in the world. And you can completely understand that because Australia is isolated to a certain degree. But I think um, the more migrants that come here, the more that that does open up young people to that conversation. So in a way, that's a really positive thing. Yeah, and, and you kind of touched on it, but I'm really interested to know what that those experiences, um, you know, from when you were young that uh, I guess helped show you into kind of what you're doing now and your interest in politics. You mentioned that you and, you know, some of your friends and students at school would talk about politics a fair bit. Um, was it a very open conversation? I think so. Um, so we weren't raised with democracy or the idea of democracy. And I think, you know, you do have a curriculum at primary school, not so much yeah. um, at secondary school, but there is a very strong primary school curriculum where it teaches you the basics of democracy and how important it was. I didn't have any of that. So <laughs> while I knew a lot about global politics and yeah. I came to Australia ready, you know, to kind of um, play a game, um, I was expected to know about Australian politics. Yeah. And I had about a year of school left and I had to learn everything about Australian politics in that one year. <laughs> um, so I, I guess the key contrast was Australia can be quite insular with how political discussions go. Yeah. Um, and it was just learning everything about democracy in one go. So, you know, I think in a way Australians are very blessed that they do get that primary school experience where, you know, you see you're in Canberra as well and you see the kids going up to Parliament House and having the tour around. I think that's a great starting point, but I think there's a lot more to go to give them that kind of global outlook on issues. Yeah, definitely. And so looking at how young people are able to get a global outlook, but not just obviously, you know, there's a lot in social media where we get information um, in our feeds that might not be accurate or is really heavily biased, um, how do we look towards getting the right information about the world around us? 
I think it ultimately comes from having a really good understanding of the humanities. So to give you some background, I became a teacher at 20 um, because I had a real passion for teaching people how to critique ideas Mm. and how to question what they were being given. And I think that really comes from subjects like history, from even geography or civics, where actually in the curriculum, it asks you to question things and it asks you to take sources and identify where they came from, who wrote them, why did they write them? Yeah. And those are skills that we really can't be without. And ultimately, I think I'd really love to contribute more in terms of political resources that yeah. enable us to question those things because civics education in this country is brilliant for primary school but a lot more could be done at secondary just to really ensure that young people are able to have that information to hand so when they're in the ballot box you know they know their politicians they fully understand the decision they're making and they have all the information they need to make that decision yeah definitely and um looking at because i know that um youth voices are something that is very neglected in at least in Australian politics um, at the moment. There's a lot of uh, policies and a lot of discussions around issues, you know, within and outside of Australia, um, but on a broader scale and not, not a lot that really focusing, focuses in on young people in particular or at least not much that is publicised by the media. And so why is um, what role do young people play um, in politics at the moment? Why is their engagement so important? I think it's because you need them to have a future of democracy in this country. Ultimately, they're going to be the next generation of politicians. And I would love those politicians to come from backgrounds which aren't necessarily aligned to political interests. So, for example, I'd love to see more teachers, more nurses go into politics, people who actually got some real life experience and have been on the front line Mm. of issues or have worked with people for a a number of years so they understand the issue before they get out there and talk about it and that life experience ultimately yes. a lot of young people possess because we have a lot of young nurses and a lot of young teachers i'd love mm. to see those people coming here as politicians and ultimately unless we engage them we're not going to get that happening yeah yeah and that kind of ties into the work you're doing with the advocate um really trying to you know empower young people to be able to engage effectively um, in politics, you know, from that young age. Um, Why don't you explain a bit more about what you're doing there? Yeah, for sure. So Advocate, essentially, I created it because I didn't see any examples when I was 18. I'd only been in Australia for a short period of time. I was interested in politics, but I got very confused when I went to O-Week. And the only way I could engage is through pretty much joining a party. And I didn't know enough to join a party and commit myself to their views because ultimately when you sign up for a party, you are signing up to defend those views. And while you may have factions, they tend to be very different from the other side. And I wasn't ready to join those factional politics and align myself before I'd fully considered every option and form my own opinions. And I think it was really important to give that opportunity to other people so that no one else would end up in that situation. And so essentially Advocate takes young people aged 18 to 30 who are passionate about issues and interested in politics and puts them in a room with politicians. And essentially young people get the opportunity to present on issues that are important to them. And for about half the meeting, the focus is on young people. 
And then it switches and they can learn from the politicians who are in that room. And I think that's really important for a reason. If you've read the headlines in the past week or so, string politics has gone yeah. a bit weird. It's based on personalities and it tends to be very vicious and primarily based on attacks mm. from both sides and to each other. And don't get me wrong, but I pay my tax dollars for someone to talk about issues and talk about things that affect me, not necessarily these petty things that don't matter. And I definitely. I know that's not true of all politicians, and I'd love people to meet politicians and see why they care. So we're not just reading media articles about our politicians, but we're meeting them in a room and asking them why you took on that role, what was you know primarily driving you in your maiden speech, but what's been your experience so far? And I think that really, in a way, breaks down what we're being told by the media about our politicians and makes them human, makes them real. And reminds them why they're in that position too. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think, you know, it's not a question of whether young people are as well are apathetic, um, you know, to the world around us, to politics, and we don't want to get involved. We do want to get involved. There's just so much noise um, within the system and around the system that we've got no idea where to start to try and find opportunities as well as find ways to create our own opportunities um, to get involved in politics. Um, and what, what do you, um, have to say, or I guess recommend around that? I think it's through finding opportunities that are there. So I didn't see one that wouldn't tell young people what they should think. Um, there are a lot of actors in the space with youth engagement, but I wanted to give young people the opportunity to talk about issues that they found important, not what I found important. So advocates, um, volunteers are facilitators only. We ensure the conversation remains constructive. We didn't want to feed young people opinions or put opinions in their mouth. We want to have a really organic conversation. And I think it's just finding the opportunities. And to be honest, if they're not there, make them. If you really care about one particular issue, call up your local mm. member and have a conversation. Because ultimately, that's real direct political engagement. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Um, but in saying that as well, um, you know, if you do call up your your local representatives or even people at a bit of a bigger level, um, do we do they care? Do they care about what we think? Do they care about what we have to say? And how how seriously are they going to take into account um, the the opinions of young people who reach out like that? Oh, I completely understand that, and that's primarily why we were talking when we started this initiative of Advocate what young people we should target and we made a huge decision to focus on young voters so when we picked 18 to 30 as the demographic it was a very conscious choice that we were looking at young voters and ultimately mm. they're a voting demographic that must be engaged if the politician we're talking about is seeking to be re-elected and totally. you know we can talk to the act specifically young people hold sway the median age in the act yeah. is 35 and that's below the national average of 37 so we are yeah. one of the youngest states and territories because we have a lot of young people coming here each year. And if we want to really break it down to a broader question, young voters are that future generation of voters. So while the media may talk about politicians chasing that senior vote, ultimately mm. that senior vote will die out. The young people are that untapped resource that will continue to be there. And if a politician or a party wants to grab them while they're young and really engage with them organically, they need to start doing that. 
Totally. And you mentioned about how, um, you know, advocates really looking for and targeting people who are of that um, young voters age. Um, how about listeners who are getting closer to the end of their high school, um, but really want to get involved and have their say and have their voices heard, I guess, within the political system. Are there avenues for us to do do so um, currently? Oh, no. Yeah, 100%. We considered that as well. So we have an intake yeah. every six months. Um, my birthday is at the end of the year. So for anyone who's born around kind of October, November, December, I feel your pain. Um, it's annoying as hell. But we really thought about that. And that's why I made two intakes per year. So we have an intake at the yeah. start of the year, but we absolutely have an intake at the end of the year so that anyone who turns 18 at the end of the year can still join. And ultimately, mm. if you want to be engaged, I always try and find opportunities for people who um, I run a number of organizations. And if someone is genuinely interested, I try and engage them in whatever means possible, because ultimately you really want to channel that passion. And you never, I, I never want to say no to someone who comes with such pure intentions and such intentions of wanting to learn and get involved in politics. If someone who's 16 and came to me who said that, I'd try and involve them in some way. Yeah, definitely. Um, and also interesting to know, I know you've been in contact and, um, you know, built a fair few relationships with politicians. Um, what are their genuine, I guess, responses from the the things that young people do say and contribute to them and the ideas that we have? Um, do you have any, I guess, experience of, them showing how they respond and how seriously they do take our opinions? I think it definitely depends on the politician you're talking to. Um, I was actually really surprised when it came to advocate. I didn't know how many politicians. So I'm under the age of 30. Um, I haven't mm. worked in politics in that I've never worked for a political party. I've only ever you know, done policy and worked for government. And I wasn't sure how they'd respond to that. <laughs> And uh, it was really surprising. Um, we have three quarters of parliament signed up and it's, I've yeah, never wow. had someone say no. And I, I was so surprised by that. I thought someone was going to say, why should I take you seriously? You know, yeah. your credentials are in education and working with young people. You know, you've never worked in this building. But I think ultimately, so long as you go in there with the right intentions, politicians do want to hear you and do want to speak to you. And I think that's ultimately what I'd recommend is do not second guess yourself, have a very clear idea of what you're going in there to talk about and be willing to listen to their response Definitely, and consider it. Even, even if it, they don't agree with you, be willing to listen. Yeah, that's no hundred percent. And I'm also quite intrigued to know um, with, you know, you said you've had, I think, was it uh, three quarters of parliament that you mentioned? 72%. Yeah. Well, nearly three quarters, pretty close. Um, yeah. Parliament sign up for advocate. What's been sort of the biggest pushbacks that you have? Um, what are the, uh, I guess, if there has been any um, objections or questions, you know, around like why should this happen? Or um, I know you said no one's directly rejected you, but um, I'm sure there would have been a couple of pushbacks or um, tough questions asked. I think you have to really know why you're there. So with Advocate, we were very lucky that we've been supported by the Young Social Pioneers Program yeah. run by the Foundation of Young Australians. So 
if I went in there and I wasn't quite sure why I was doing this program and for anyone in social entrepreneurship or in advocacy space, the why is ultimately what you must know back to front and go back yeah. to when times get tough. Yeah. I, re- I really refined that through that experience. So I have a very clear idea of what I was doing. Yeah. And if I ever got any kind of pushback, mostly it's questions. And in the first year of any program, people are unsure. People, you know, if it hasn't been tested thoroughly, people are always a bit hesitant. But ultimately, if you know why you're doing something, you know your branding and you know your message, yeah. people are keen to join. And ultimately, if you can answer those questions um, authentically and knowing your why, you'll get people on board. And I think it was a really positive show considering it's our first year mm. and we just want to keep building on that experience mm. so that we can have more young people across Australia, let alone the city, getting an experience like this. Definitely. And I, I do want to, that brings up a, an interesting point in that, you know, you, you've sort of brought in social entrepreneurship there and I do want to look into you know, the differences, the positives and the negatives of systematic change through policy and government um, against independent change makers like social enterprises and not-for-profits. But just before we did go into that, um, I'd be interested to know, you know, what's your why? I think it's for advocate, our why is connecting young people, the next generation of voters, with their politicians. It enables young people to have the opportunity to talk about issues that are important to them and ensure that that's represented by the politicians who ultimately, whose job it is, is to represent young people in the ACT. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I think it, I just wanted to show um, listeners, you know, what a clear purpose and a clear why um, might sound like because that can seem like a bit of a vague area as well. Um, but, yeah, just going back onto um, what I did want to touch on, which was the pros and, and the cons, I guess, of uh, systematic change against um you know, like independent change makers, so policy and government um, against people who are really working through the social enterprise and not-for-profit and the private sector. Um, what's more effective? Uh, what are the, I guess, if there isn't a clear one, um, the positives and negatives of both? That's a really good question. I think if you're talking about systematic change versus independent, it's definitely an ecosystem. And I've really thought mm. about this, but you can't have one without the other. Um, from yeah. my observations, the world of social enterprise often pushes us forward in areas that government is perhaps, particularly if it's an untested area, government's a little bit hesitant to go towards. Once social enterprise gets us there, I think often the next pie to the table is private enterprise in taking us forward. So private yeah. companies, for example, often have a community brand and they are willing to take a bit of a risk in some areas. Um, and I think ultimately the work of s- social enterprises takes government with them so they can champion mm. causes and build that momentum that either creates policy change or magnifies their impact to bring yeah. government with them after a while. Yeah, definitely. And for a young person who's not who knows that they want to make a difference and address some, you know, a particular issue but doesn't know whether they want to do it through um, the public or whether they want to do it through the private sector, um, is there any sort of advice that you can give around um, trying to identi- trying to identify what the best sort of change is for you? Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely speak to this question. And if anyone has any questions about what I'm about to say, please feel free to look me up and ask. Um, but yeah. I have worked for both 
I started my career with NFPs. So I worked for a large NFP in education. And at the moment, I work in government. So I've worked um, across the Department of Education and for mm. another education provider in the government sector. I would say the government sector, you will learn communication like you've never learned before. Um, you'll learn some amazing skills and you'll often learn from people who've been doing it for 20, 30 years. So that does give you some amazing experience. And particularly if you're chasing government at a federal level, that's national policy making experience. Um, however, to talk to the other side, independent change makers such as social enterprises allow you to work at the coalface in a way that government work doesn't. So yeah. my recommendation would be do both. And go where your passion is currently taking you, but always be open to the other option because they both give you amazing skill sets. Definitely. And is there like an advantage in starting one over, um, starting one, you know, before the other? Because I know a lot of people um, who say, oh, it might be best to get, like, I really want to start a a not-for-profit around this or I really want to start a social enterprise around this. But I think it's probably best if I get some experience, um, you know, in the public sector, if I, um, you know, go get through my degree, um, get a job, uh, learn from the people around me and then try and start. Is there um, a real benefit to that? Is there a better way of trying to balance that out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this will be, again, very personal depending on yeah. where you want to go. My, or based on my experience, I think starting at the coal phase gives you a lot of respect when you then want to go towards um, systematic change. So, for example, um, I started out as a teacher in one of the most lowest economic areas of Australia and teaching in a classroom with very little training. And that experience and staying there for those extra years, even once I'd finished my contract, and actually getting school leadership experience of running different programs meant that I had a lot more to talk about when I then wanted to go to government. So, for example, if a government policy was coming in on something like apprenticeships, I'd worked with yeah. apprenticeships, so I knew what their experience was like to some extent. I could talk to that. And I think that gives you a bit more respect, but it also made me feel way more authentic when I was making those decisions because I could talk to the experiences of the people I was going to be making that policy for. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that's those are some really great insights, um, Kate. And it is some sort of stuff that we never really talk about, you know, in our classrooms or even outside our classrooms. It's just conversations that never really happen, but they're super important because um, I do know a lot of people that are really interested in social change um, but have got no idea where to start or where to go. And it's because of these um, things that we never get a perspective from from someone who's actually been there and done it. Oh, absolutely. And to be honest, so many pressures. And I I have a number of friends, I went back and did postgraduate study and a number of friends were having a careers conversation inside their head almost, which they then expressed at dinner times going, ah, help me. Um, <laughs> but it was things like, you know, do you chase um, a systematic change career in something like government where you yeah. have a paycheck, that was almost more, it has a bit more security to it. In some cases, it's a larger paycheck versus taking a chance and doing something like starting your own organization or joining an NFP, which may not have secured funding. And again, it comes down to 
what would be the most valuable thing for you at yeah. that point in time? Because what I would say yeah. is for policy work and systematic change, if you have the skills, that door can always be open. Definitely. I think I think it's important um, that you note that as well because uh, personally, you know, just coming out of high school, the the vibe that I get from, you know, a lot of us who, you know, are finishing up high school or in our later years of high school is that it's kind of the opposite where you need to have um, experience in the public sector before you can make a difference um, doing your own thing. And it's interesting that you kind of point out um, an avenue for, for the other side of things where you actually create change through your own means, through um, being an independent change maker and use that as a precedent to then get involved within um, public policy and change in that regard. Oh, absolutely. And the advice I would give to anyone is before you go and make change for someone else, understand what their experience is like. Um, so, for example, if I stepped in the education space before getting four or five years experience being a teacher, I don't think mm. teachers would take me seriously. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. And I've gone on to make a contribution. So I, through my experience um, of being a teacher and not having the resources to teach my kids with, because I don't know about you, Echo, but when you learn history, sometimes it feels like you're being hit over the head with an encyclopedia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some of the textbooks are just so high level. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, the kids that I was teaching, in a lot of cases, they've been in Australia for, or even learning English for less than five years. And I had them for, you know, maybe two, three years left of school. And I wanted to teach them how to write an essay. And I wanted to give them skills they could take with them after school. So I ended up writing my own textbooks. And the reason, so I wrote textbooks for the national curriculum. And the reason they're still selling is, I think, because I was a teacher and I use these resources and they're useful. And ultimately, that experience and the reason I'm telling you that story is if you go in there and you get to the coal face and you put in the hard yards and you really get to know your subject, that authenticity yeah. means that you can definitely go and have a career change later in life, but you can speak to the experience of people who've been in that situation, not speak for them, but definitely understand more about what they go through. Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. And, um, one last thing I, I wanted to touch on um, as well today, Kate, is I know you've been involved in the the education sector, and that's um, primarily where your career started off. Um, and we're also talking about a lot of uh, things today that young people should be mindful of, and is really it's really important um, that they know about these things. But it's not really discussed in the classrooms, as I've mentioned. What does education need right now to be able to? innovate with the world around us um, from your experience um, and how might we go around um, implementing that change? Yeah, for sure. And I can feel like a lot of, if you're in year 12 or you just finished your exams right now, you may love me for this question um, because <laughs> my response, and this is as a former teacher, is it ultimately needs to be so much less focused on testing. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, the goal of testing and why you do testing as a school and as an education body is you want to create a bell curve of your students. And you do that by classes, 
you rank schools nationally based on something like NAPLAN when you're in, yeah. you know, years seven to nine or below. And internationally through things like PISA, which is run by the OECD, if you ever had to do that when you're 15. And that model of education, if you follow that through of why you create testing, you're ultimately looking for the students at the top of the bell curve. So mm. seemingly it's to create academics and to reward those at the top. But really, yeah. with more people at university and limited teaching positions, that model no longer works. Yeah. So what I would say is drastically step away from the notion of testing. Um, I have two more things for you. Um, university is not the only pathway. That was, is mm-hmm. what I would say. Um, <laughs> I know a number of people who quit their university degree halfway through. And a lot of people may know the founder of Thank You Water. He quit his degree with about, I think, a year, six months to go. Yeah. And that's a really inspirational story. But at the same time, he's a fantastic individual. Um, To give you a marker of why that's important, the number of apprenticeships and traineeships that are being taken up across Australia has actually declined 45% in the past decade. So Mm. it's it's a bit disturbing, particularly if you need a plumber, if you're listening. Um, but essentially we need to stop pushing everyone to university as some kind of marker of success because not every yeah. student is going to turn that as necessary. And as Daniel Flynn showed as one example, it's not necessarily what you need to achieve your goals later in life. Oh, I a hundred percent agree. And I think, um, people listening in would be really relieved to hear that as well. Um, because it's something that we all think and we kind of, it is definitely something that we're aware of that there is this shift around, um, you know, what we really need to be successful in the world right now. Um, but it's so ingrained that, we, you know, we do need to go to university and then we can pursue the other things that we want to do. Um, whereas if you're really set on, you know, what you want to achieve and what you want to do and university isn't the right pathway to go around that, um, it's important to know that there are there really are other pathways um, and other ways to do what you want. And you can always, always fall back on um, going to university, particularly while you're young. You've got time to try things out um, and see what sticks. Oh, 100%. And I guess I completely agree with that. And the last thing I would say is we've created this hierarchy right now where a lot of students who may be at university right now, mm. I think you're figuring out if you're at Melbourne Uni as one particular example, the Melbourne model says you need a master's after yeah. your bachelor's. <laughs> Um, and I, do you know what? I'll, I'll share one story. Um, the greatest gift I've ever received in my life in education is I was given a scholarship to Cambridge University and that's where I undertook my second master's degree. Yeah. And that's where I really got core experience in financial literacy. And I was actually given a PhD place. And do you know what? And people at home, please don't punch your screens in frustration, <laughs> but I walked away from my PhD about four weeks before starting it um, because I was given an opportunity to come to Australia and ultimately I thought about who the PhD was for and I had two choices. I could do my PhD at an amazing university, not taking away from them at all, Mm. Um, but I had a second opportunity to come back to Australia and work in financial literacy and work in the education department and ultimately that's where I could contribute most to and that's what I decided to do. So I decided to come back to Australia and work across federal policy. 
because the value of education is not that piece of paper, but it's what enables you to contribute to improving the world around you. So mm. if you're at home wondering, <laughs> think about what you can contribute. It's not yeah. in any way more than that. Uh, I think I think that's amazing. And I, I don't really have anything to add on to that because I was beautifully summed up. And I think it's also a great place um, to finish up today, Kate. Uh, I really do want to thank you for for coming on. I think that was one of the most practical conversations I've had. Uh, I think there's definitely a lot of takeaways uh, for young people, whether they're you know still in high school, even if they're um, into their early university years as well. A lot of stuff that we can take away from that. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening in. I do want to ask you to please leave a review for this podcast. Um, one, it really helps with being more visible on people's feeds and whatever podcasting apps they use so more people can benefit from the discussions we have and also let me know what you think like whether the stuff that we talk about is actually helping you and if there's any other topics you want to hear about or any sort of people you want to hear from thanks for listening and hope you guys have a good week ahead